Well, I know we're back in the book of Acts, and I wanted to stay faithful to the fact that we're back in the Acts series. So when Eric said we're preaching on Acts 13, I said, ah, one of my favorite passages. And uh, it was with great joy that I was able to prepare this sermon this morning at 4 a.m. <laughs> so my best mornings are spent doing this very thing. Anytime we read the book of Acts, we have to go back to Luke's preface to the book, in Acts chapter 1, to really keep in mind what is Luke's intention and trajectory for the narrative. If you recall in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Luke says this. In my first book, which is the book of Luke, Theophilus, who is his target audience, he says, I have dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after, suffering, uh, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You know, Luke uses this phrase, what Jesus began to do and teach. And we don't see it in the English so much, but in the Greek, that's what they call the aorist tense, which means something that began in the past and continues into the future. So even just by choosing that verb, Luke is declaring Jesus is alive and still working. And so it's fitting that Luke's letter is called the book of Acts, right? It's not called the book of thoughts. Many times people think of the Bible as a collection of thoughts that we can just think about and maybe it'll help our lives. But no, this is a testimony of what Jesus is doing through the Holy Spirit and through his apostles, the book of Acts. And so with that in mind, let's read our passage for today, which is Acts chapter 13. You'll be able to read it on the screen as I read. Read with me together. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. 
Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. May the Lord add a blessing to his reading of his word. Within Luke's larger narrative, this passage introduces a major transition. Up until this point, the focus has been on the church in Jerusalem. And in Luke's telling, the Gentile mission here is the focus, the Gentile mission. Within this major theme, I'd like to zoom in on Saul and have you notice a few things. So I want you to look at verse 1 of chapter 13. Now there were in the church Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius, Menaean, Herod, a friend of Herod, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So we get a little insight into how this church operated, the church at Antioch. This calling came out of a worship service, not a planning meeting. And I think that should open our eyes a little bit to how we engage in worship. What are we aware of? What do we listen to? Are there prophets in our midst? This church also is presented here as very diverse and cosmopolitan. In the year 44, the Olympic Games were held in Antioch, drawing people from all over and across the empire. Antioch was a diverse, very cosmopolitan city, and scholars believe it was about this time that Saul arrived. And so if you're familiar with Paul's writings, you can appreciate his sports analogies from this era of his life, boxing, physical training, running, and CrossFit. Well, his own version, right? The box. But the church is also quite diverse. We can learn something from this. Some of the notable servants of the church in Antioch were North Africans like Simeon or a royal adoptee, Menaean. Already we have a diversity within the church. We hear echoes of Pentecost when God-fearing Jews from all nations gathered. These men likely came to faith through Jewish communities, but a new era in preaching was about to begin the era of the Gentile. And not God-fearing Gentiles, like Cornelius we talked about several weeks ago, but straight-up pagan Gentiles who have no knowledge of the Bible. None. Antioch presents a, an appealing vision of the church, which is very inclusive. It should inspire us to be even more inclusive. I can't think can't help but think of the words of Martin Luther King Jr. when he once said that Sunday morning continues to be the most segregated hour in America. This wasn't the case in Antioch. So here, out of this community, we have Paul, still known as Saul here, getting his commission. We know Saul already got his call from Jesus in Acts chapter 9, but here he gets his commission. I want to talk about how the call and your commission relate. Look at verse 2. Notice who initiates the missionary journey. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says in the midst of the church. And likely this is to the prophets mentioned previously. So notice the cooperation with the church and the Spirit. The Spirit gives the call or the command, and the church is instructed to respond by setting them apart. Right? So they all have a part in Paul's calling, right? And that setting apart is his commissioning. 
And they commissioned him by prayer and the laying on of hands, which is the transfer of authority of the church to him. So let's take a, t- take a closer look at Saul's call and his eventual commission by the church of Antioch. Acts chapter 9, Jesus calls Saul. And he says this, Saul is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. This is Saul's call, right? A call is something that comes from outside of you. Something outside of you calls you. Paul knew as well as we should know that you cannot call yourself (laughs) to a ministry. We're not self-starters. That is not the Holy Spirit's plan. You see, a call may originate through the Holy Spirit as a personal conviction, but then all calls have to be commissioned by the local church to be activated. That's the authority given to the church. Let's look at Paul's story. I want to prove this to you. From the book of Galatians, we learn that almost 10 years had passed since Paul received his call personally. 10 years until the day when the church finally set him apart to be a missionary. He cultivated his call according to his own testimony. He went to Arabia, he went to Damascus, he joined a monastic community and then ended up in Tarsus before joining the church in Antioch when Barnabas grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and said, we need you here. Now it might seem that Saul is a, a great candidate for all his visions to receive for the Independent Spirit Award, right? He got so many great revelations from God, you think that guy will go off on his own, but he did not. Upon further examination, we see that Saul confirmed his call with Peter, James, and John in the church in Jerusalem. Why? His own words, to make sure that I wasn't running in vain. Galatians 2.2. He was confident for sure, almost cocky when you read his letters, about the revelation he received, but he was certainly not independent. How do we understand our own sense of calling? Do we self-authenticate our calls? Or even self-commission without reference to the church at all? There's many people who claim to be Christian and who aren't among us today, naturally, that believe that they can just live their life, them and Jesus, their Bible, following whatever thing strikes their fancy. Not God's plan. I can't tell you how many young people I know who came to faith in college or a parachurch ministry and never properly aligned themselves with the local church. Only the church has been entrusted to deliver the word, the ordinances, and discipline, discipleship. The Great Commission, as we know it, is responsible for so many self-starting and self-authenticating missions. And the danger there is they run the risk of running in vain, if not confirmed by the church. That enthusiasm needs to be ordered. It's good. It needs to be ordered and come under authority, just like Paul did. In fact, Paul, when he found discrepancies in the message of his church or flaws in the leadership, he didn't reject them. He engaged with them. He worked to refine and perfect both, both his mission and the church by appealing to the scriptures and encouraging repentance where sin was warping the message. Not our typical picture of submission when we see Paul, but that's exactly what he was doing. 
You see, he was honoring the church. There can be a bunch of reasons, according to human wisdom, to abandon the church. We see a lot of them being expressed today. But she is God's chosen instrument and the institution through whom the wisdom of God will be made known to the world. We would do well to remind ourselves of that truth. So how do you cultivate your calling in light of this? Do you have a conviction about something? Right? If you do, press into that. Take your time, short time or long. Paul took 10 years. Prepare yourself for the day when the church sets you apart to execute your call. Paul spent 12 years cultivating his gift for the day when the church would set him apart. See, God is sovereign over time. (laughs) He is not in a rush. We are. We're the ones in a rush. In Paul's own words, he encourages Timothy, remember, study to show yourself a workman approved. He didn't just throw Timothy out there. Timothy had it hard enough with all his studying. Imagine if he had sent him out before he was ready to be savaged by the other churches. (laughs) Poor guy. This is a great story, by the way. Cultivate your calling and discover your gift. It's one of the challenges of Scripture to us. Serve the church. Try this. Try that. (laughs) Don't know what yours is? Try everything. Take on something you care about deeply. Let the church community and those gifted help you clarify your calling and ultimately commission you to the work. It's great freedom in that, knowing you're operating out of the power of the Holy Spirit. And the outcome are the outcomes that God has designed. That you may not run in vain. That's my first point. The second part of this passage and the, the big narrative importance is this, is the ministry toward the pagan. Toward the pagan. <clears throat> we, I, I can't emphasize it enough. We have to understand that at this phase in the ministry of the church, the church, which comes from a religious background, Judaism, they have the scriptures and all that stuff, is now about to engage in a conversation with a whole people group, a civilization that has no knowledge of the Bible. So Paul and Barnabas cannot start with this thing. The Bible says. What's the Bible? A totally irrelevant thing to say to start a conversation. Let me read read verse 4 and 5 again. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. Okay? So the first thing they do, Paul has a promise. God says, first thing you do before you talk to the pagans, you always have to go to the Jews that are local. It's my promise to them that this message of salvation will go to the Jew first. So Paul does his due diligence. Okay? He doesn't ignore them. <clears throat> Up to this point, the spread of the gospel has been fairly spontaneous. From Acts chapter 7, we see the, the institution of the deacons was really a response to the spontaneous movement of the gospel, and they were trying to catch up, really. It has gone to the Jews in Judea, Hellenistic Jews from Syria and North Africa, Samaritans, God-fearing Gentiles in Asia, and now, out of the port of Seleucia, the first time recorded by Luke, the pagan Gentile. We have to get this idea of pagan 
back into our vocabulary because we are entering into what most sociologists call neo-paganism. The church needs to be ready. The people that they're about to face after they leave those synagogues are people who worship Jupiter Optimus Maximus, Venus, and the Caesar. In those days, the fastest growing religion in the Roman Empire was Caesar worship. This is the biggest religion. How do you engage these religions? Are you ready to talk about Jupiter Optimus Maximus in your apologetics? Sergius Paulus in this passage, the proconsul, represents this whole Roman world and the superstitious way of Roman thinking. His appearance here in chapter 13 represents the completion of Luke's ethnographic arc in this book. And we're reminded of what Peter said in Acts chapter 2. This is a fulfillment of a promise from God. Peter said this, the promise of Jesus is for you, your children, and all who are far off. Sergius Paulus represents those who are far off, and as we'll see, way off. (laughs) Way off. And they came to this call and this commission with a strategy. You see, Cyprus was the home country of Barnabas. It's where he grew up. It wasn't just some random choice. They didn't just throw a dart at the map. It was a strategic starting point for the mission. He probably went back to his old stomping grounds, to his family, and to his old synagogue. And as Paul knew, and as, as, as the other apostles did too, he went to the Jew first. You see, this priority, the Jew first, shows God's faithfulness to reserve a remnant from among the Jewish people. During Paul's ministry, we see the Lord calling a small but select group from among them. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So let's picture this. The island of Cyprus is about 100 miles wide. It's one of those long, thin islands. And so Barnabas and Paul started their synagogue tour, and it probably lasted for several months, thinking you're stopping in every synagogue, preaching a little bit, engaging in conversations, having meals, and so forth. So several months later, they arrive at the west coast, where the capital city of Paphos is. And by then, you can imagine that news of them kind of turning things upside down has, has arrived for the proconsul. So he says, a word, please. <laughs> right? Basically, he's being summoned. Now, if you understand Paul, he expresses it later in the book of Acts. This is his entire goal in his ministry, to minister in such a way that the leaders will hear about it, and you'll be brought before them. And because Jesus told him, you will stand before kings and rulers. So Paul goes, if that's going to happen, I've got to get their attention somehow. So by preaching to the Jew and the Gentile alike, converting people as he went, the proconsul calls him in and says, I'd like to talk with you a little bit, what you've been doing on my island, turning it upside down. And this is the same theme we see in Paul's rest of his ministry. His goal always was to get before Caesar, to tell Caesar to his face, 
Jesus is king. Not you. And here he has someone lower in the totem pole, but nevertheless, his purpose is to say Jesus is Lord to the rulers and the authorities. The proconsul Sergius Paulus is described here as an intelligent man, or in some translations, a prudent man. And I can imagine that Luke is using this kind of flattery to appeal to his reader, who is called the most excellent Theophilus, right? Acts chapter 1. Some very respected person Luke is writing this letter to. The most excellent. It's a title in Roman culture. A man of some standing who would love to be associated with people of intelligence or prudence. Draws him into the story, you see. So this guy, Sergius Pauls, has an advisor that works for him. Very interesting guy. A Jew, he's a Jewish guy, but he's a magician and a false prophet. And he goes by the name Bar-Jesus. You know what this word means? His name? What a name. Son of salvation. Now who wouldn't want a staff member <laughs> whose title was Son of Salvation? We call them press secretaries here, right? Or agent, your agent. He also went by the name Elemis. That's a version of the Aramaic word which means wise man. We actually, it's the same word which we call the wise men that come to Jesus. It's not a flattering term, by the way. It means you're a magician and a sorcerer. <laughs> That's not a good thing. And Elamis comes from the word Elam, which is the name given, if you remember, in the book of Genesis, to one of Noah's grandsons, who are described as being the father of a people group that populated Persia, from which all the magic arts come. <clears throat> so this guy Elamis is dabbling in omens and magic practices and the like, and therefore gets the, name, the nickname Elamis, right? The Persian. He's a Jew, but he's called the Persian because he's a magician. It was not uncommon in these days for Roman leaders to dabble in the occult or in syncretism, to just collect as many things as they think would help them in their day, no matter how superstitious. Just like Americans, don't we? A little bit of yoga, a little bit of Hinduism, it, whatever helps. A little chicken soup for the soul, doesn't matter, right? We just blend it together thinking it's all really just help me get through my life. Well, these guys are the same way. This guy's surrounding himself by people with all kinds of salvation, right? A little salvation from the Jews, a little salvation from Persia. We're going to save you. Don't worry. I got this under control. I'm your advisor. The fact that Elemis was a Jew who practiced sorcery shows how so-called salvation was for sale. Earthly salvation. Earthly wisdom. Little Jewish wisdom little sorcery, no problem. This guy was pretty sharp, obviously. And we're told here that Elemis opposed Paul and Barnabas. He opposed them. Okay, It's a very kind of neutral term. I like other translations where it says this, he withstood them. Imagine being the person who's recorded as having withstood Paul and Barnabas. You better be something. Best lawyer. You're, the best lawyer of the day, Paul. Saul of Tarsus. 
and you're withstanding him in court. This guy's something else. The idea of having withstood somebody shows that he was having some success until the spirit interceded. Rescued Paul. You see, what Elenus was doing was something that we should expect when the word of God is being preached. In Matthew chapter 4, in the parable of the sower, Jesus warns of this effect. It says that Satan takes takes away the word sown in the hearts of men. And he says that bird who eats the seeds is Satan. So Paul immediately understands where this guy is getting his power. How he's having his success. Satan sells success. Verse 9. But Saul, who is also called Paul, important note, by the way, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Now I can imagine Saul was seeing himself in him, right? Same kind of guy. And said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. In verse 9, this is the first time Saul is referred to as Paul in the book of Acts. First time. A Roman name. Some scholars suggest that Saul took it in remembrance of this exchange with Sergius Paulus. But whatever the case, all agree that it represents Paul's commitment to be an ambassador to the pagan world from here on out, changing his name. What does your name mean to you? Would you be willing to part with it for the sake of the lost? Paul looked intently at Elemis. Did you ever have someone look intently at you? I mean, laser, lasers, right? Daggers from the eyes, you never have that. This is what's happening. Now, I'm trying to get inside Paul's head here because the language which Luke uses sounds very much like Paul's conversion. Remember when Jesus confronted Paul in Acts chapter 9? Why do you resist? Paul's using very similar language to this guy. Why are you making crooked the straight path of the Lord? So Paul, I, I, you have to think he's seeing himself in this guy. Do you ever see yourself in somebody else? You know their tricks. You know exactly what they're up to. And Paul sees himself here. And here, through the words of Saul, Paul at this point, the son of salvation is revealed to be the son of the devil. That guy delivered so much salvation up to this point. He got everybody out of their pickles. Probably helped them govern with really good wisdom. You see, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, written by Paul, Paul says this. 
Satan disguises himself, you see, as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise himself as servants of righteousness. But their end will correspond with their deeds. How do we distinguish between servants of the devil and servants of God? By looking for the servants of righteousness? We better look much deeper than that. Because Satan presents himself as a servant of righteousness. All good things. Makes sense. Pragmatic. Glorious. We need to be wise. It's not enough for someone to say good things. Their end will correspond with their deeds. See, the scriptures teach that Satan can no longer keep the nations in darkness. But he will try his best now to keep the truth gray. Confusing. And it is this grayness that we contend with mostly in our time. We're all good people. All roads lead to heaven. Etc., etc. Theologian and sociologist Richard Niebuhr describes the grayness of our time and the false gospels and false salvation out there in this way. He says it's like this. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. It's not a very powerful gospel, but that's the one we contend with in our time. And this is an example of people in our day, just like those days, make crooked the straight paths of the Lord and draw people away from the faith. But the Holy Spirit prevails here, doesn't he? In verse 12, it said, despite what happened to his advisor, seeing the sign, it said the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. And I like this part. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The teaching of the Lord. Not a thing that just happened. Not that miracle that just happened. He was able to look past that. It caught his attention, but he said, give me the teaching. How many of us want to be around the things of God because there might be a spectacle or it's going to prove to be a very powerful antidote to whatever we have in mind? How many of us can really say that it is the teaching of the Lord that drew me? Not the wonders and the signs. Sergius Paulus was an intelligent man. He understood that sign, but more importantly, he believed the message. This passage ends with a pagan ruler believing in Jesus. The mission to the pagan and the heathen is underway, and it will not be stopped. They will be included in the family of the gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. John speaks of it in Revelation, saying this, And the saints sang a new song, saying, Worthy is the Lamb to take the scroll, to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. 
You see, Jesus is building a community of people filled with gratitude and love for God and love for each other. He's breaking down all the barriers that previously divided us. Paul says it this way in Titus 3. At one time, we were all foolish, disobedient, and deceived, being hated and hating one another. This is what Jesus saved us from. That's the condition under the pagan realities, being hated, hating one another. Christian missiologist Leslie Newbegin and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who probably most of you know, agree that Western culture is on the cusp of becoming neo-pagan. I mentioned it before, neo-pagan. Neo means new. Pagan again. No longer can we rely on there being a basic understanding of Christianity. The author Flannery O'Connor referred to this post-Christian neo-pagan culture as Christ-haunted. It's about the best we can expect. The mission to our town will be markedly different than it has been in previous generations because of this. But we shouldn't be scared. We take confidence the church has been here before, as we see in Paul's ministry to the pagans. He challenges warped and compromised versions of religion as we see with Elemis. We also see Paul creatively using pagan cultural artifacts to begin the conversation. Right? Paul can't start the conversation, the Bible says. He's a good guy to follow through the book of Acts for this reason. We have to look around for creative ways to tell Jesus' story. Later in Acts, we see Paul get creative. On Mars Hill in Athens, he engages the philosophers of Athens. He says, you have a statue to the unknown God. That's very interesting. He says, I'm going to preach that unknown God to you today. You know, he's, he's finding these starting points. Paul doesn't start the conversation with what the Bible says. Instead, he says, you know, your poets say, and our poets also say, can we talk about this? It's going to take some work. You've got to be creative and trust the Spirit. In our current culture, you can no longer assume that people know what the Bible says. <laughs> and less than 2%, I think Eric said this last week, less than 2% of the population in this area has ever heard a credible, uh, a credible presentation of the gospel. Less than 2%. That's enough by most mission boards to define an unreached people group. These are our realities. If we don't wake up and realize that, we'll be poor ministers of the gospel. We'll become entrenched. And we won't come out of our foxholes because we feel embattled. That didn't stop Paul and Barnabas. They were sent by the church. We're on the frontier of gospel missions right now, people. Frontier. You know, Paul took a name change. We saw in this passage, right? In order to engage in this new kind of mission, we have to take stock and recognize that we need a name change, an identity makeover, if you will. Christianity no longer holds a place of honor in our culture, and we shouldn't cling desperately to the days when that was the case. Instead, we need to become like Saul of Tarsus, putting whatever reputation we had behind us and take up a new name suitable to the mission at hand. 
Do you know what the name Paul means in the Roman world? Small. Small. In order to begin his ministry to the pagan, Paul has to become small. The least of the apostles. Do we wish to be large and in charge in the current cultural climate? Does the church want to be called Optimus Maximus or Paul? The gospel of our Lord Jesus requires small people who, like our Lord, made no threats, did not retaliate. There was no deceit found in his mouth, and he was silent even as a sheep was led to the slaughter. Oh, that the church's reputation would be that of their Lord. Sergius Paulus saw the sign, and like I said before, it was most importantly that he believed the message. In the book of Acts, we often see Luke contrasting those who were drawn to the spectacle of miracles and those who actually believed the message and were transformed by it. Which are you? Do you follow for the wonders or the teaching of the Lord? Will you be like Jesus' fans during his ministry who abandoned him when the teaching became too hard? Too hard. And they left him, his fans. Or will you be like Peter, who when confronted by Jesus and asked, will you leave me too, Peter? Many even know Peter's response. I tell this to myself every day. Peter said, where else would I go? Only you have the words of life. Where else would I go? We are being sold so many different salvation stories in these days. And we are surrounded by many so-called sons of salvation, peddlers of earthly prosperity and security, promoting an agenda that is at odds with the teaching of the Lord. Who is your bar Jesus? Who's your advisor? Who do you listen to to make your judgments? Is it Jesus or bar Jesus? Do you have a son of salvation you look to explain everything to make Realities of the world seem understandable. For many right now, your bar Jesus is your income tax accountant. Yeah. But as Americans, I'd wager to say that it is more likely your retirement accountant. Salvation in the future. For many others, the primary salvation they want isn't necessarily financial, but it is based on security. They want to be safe at all costs without consideration of who it affects. Right now, even as we speak, the most vulnerable of the world are being swept aside in the name of security and crushed in the machinery of empire. And yet Christians, by and large, remain strangely silent under the spell of Bar-Jesus. 
Please hear me on this. The Roman Empire was built on and controlled its citizens with a promise of security and economic prosperity. Paul warns the church to not buy into this rhetoric in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He warns. They say, peace and security, peace and security, peace and security. But destruction will come upon them in an instant. They can't secure their own security. Don't believe the promises, Paul says. Listen, with Jesus as king of kings and lord of lords, no empire is safe. Not even the one we live under. Do not put your hope in it. Put your hope in God. Will we, like the church, like Paul, will we have the boldness in the face of opposition to be humble, to be small, trust God, to stand up to such blind men and call them out for what they're doing? Do we have the evangelistic and prophetic nerve to say, you enemy of righteousness, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? The church has been here before. Paul lived in times very much like these. And so let me just say this. Let us take encouragement because this testimony in scripture was given to us for our encouragement. And so we know that we're among the great, the saints of God. For the glory of Jesus, for the good of his church, amen.